Our scripture we're reading this morning is by Brian Phillips. We're in John 13, and I have no idea what page number that is. Do you? Page 900. 900. From John chapter 13, we're reading verses 21 through 38, page 900 in the Pew Bibles. John 13, 21 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is him to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. So if you recall from last week, Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. The greatest person in the history of the universe has gotten down on his knees and gotten his towel dirty. For the disciples, for you, for me. And it's hard to tell at first glance in our text here for today, but like any good storyteller, John has been steadily building a certain layer of intrigue in his book so far. And now in our text for today, he's finally going to turn the release valve and let all the pressure out. So way back in John chapter 6, you'll find this in verses 64 to 71, way back in John 6, so a lot of time has passed, uh, in comparison to where we are now. Jesus laments that many of his disciples had turned their backs and no longer walked with him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you guys want to go away too? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet, 
One of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was going to betray him. So if you're a careful reader, ever since John chapter 6, you'd be wondering where and when Judas' betrayal was going to happen. What kind of betrayal was it going to be? And so today we're going to unpack this. But why does it even matter? What does the betrayal matter? Well, it matters because of who is the one that is betrayed in the story. If Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be throughout the gospel, then his betrayal is going to have cosmic ripples. Plus, what do you do with a so-called God who falls prey to a flimsy plot like Judas's plot? If he is so easily duped, then you probably just move on from Jesus. There is no way a dude that is duped that easily is actually God. What do you do with that? On the other hand, if Jesus did know, if he did know the violence that he was about to succumb to, if he did know he was going to be taken captive, then we at least ought to give it a closer look, consideration. In verses 19 and 21, we can observe Jesus knowing the violence of his future and willingly stepping into this plot that Judas has hatched. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that? And what impact will that have in your life on a Wednesday afternoon in the office? What does it matter? Well, Jesus' choices to move forward with God's plan on a dark spring night were earth-shattering. They will not only alter, alter your forever, they will alter, alter your now. You see, the gospel is not just the minimum viable truth to get you into the door of heaven. It actually changes your life right now. Right now. It'll change you from the top to the bottom, from the inside out. So here's Jesus eating his last supper on earth with his very closest friends. And remember, if you remember from last week, sort of the setting in this room is that the disciples and Jesus are lying on the floor around a very low-profile table. They're typically leaning on their left elbow, which is on top of a cushion, eating with their right hand with their feet behind them. So the disciple whom Jesus loved, and the evidence suggests that it's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved is sitting next to Jesus, maybe to his right. And Jesus had just said up in there in verse 21 that one of the disciples would betray him. But none of the disciples knew who he was talking about. They had no clue. You see that in verse 22. And then in verse 23, though, look with me, if you will. Wherever Peter is at, he somehow signals John to ask Jesus, who is it? So he's like, ask him, ask him, who's the guy that's going to betray Jesus? So John sort of leans back against Jesus as they're laying on the floor there, and he asks him. And I think that whatever Jesus said there in verse 26, he said it very softly to John in a way that no one else could hear. He said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread. And I think he said it really softly so that no one else could hear because we see that the other disciples clearly don't know what was said. Because at the end of our text for today, when Judas leaves, they have no idea why he's leaving. They don't get it. So Judas had spent years with Jesus, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. And yet, Judas was not one of his. He wasn't in the family. So I think John pens these words here in chapter 13 about Judas as an example and as a warning to all of us in here. Now most of us, if you're anything like me, most of us instinctively categorize Judas as something other than us. Judas is something that we aren't. 
And I think what John is saying in this text is not so fast. Let's consider this. Take a moment. Take a moment to make sure you're not Judas because everything is on the line for you and for me. Everything. So it's worth stepping back to consider just for a minute here. From Judas, we learn first this morning, first of two points, proximity to Jesus is no substitute for a relationship with Jesus. Proximity to Jesus is no substitute for a relationship with Jesus. I think what is fascinating and simultaneously alarming about our sin is that it can be so hidden, so secret, that no one can know the real you if you don't want them to. I mean, the disciples had no clue how dark the heart of their friend Judas had become. You would have thought that there might have been some kind of rumble of, I'm not exactly who, sure who the person is that's going to betray Jesus, but I bet it's Judas. We don't get that sense at all. They have no idea. So you can be in and amongst the people of God and yet be far, far from God. Every Sunday attendance says nothing about the condition of your heart. Judas's mask was so elaborate that his closest friends had no idea. There are probably some of us in here whose mask is so sophisticated that no one truly knows how dark your heart has gone. What mask do you wear? Whatever it is, it is false and fragile and it's an identity that is based on your performance. But what happens when it cracks? What happens when you misstep or when you falter? Or where will you run when your entire identity has been jeopardized? Your proximity to Jesus is not a substitute for your relationship with Jesus. It wasn't for Judas, and it won't be for you and I. Look, you can fool me, you can fool the rest of the pastors, you can probably fool your family and friends for a time, but the one you can't fool is Jesus. He knows. He knew Judas's heart and he knows yours. And so there's this infinite gap between being religious and having a relationship with Jesus. There is an infinite gap there. Judas was religious and right now he is under the just eternal wrath of God. Well, God forbid that we would merely be religious at Trinity. May he call us into a relationship with him. Look what Judas' sin does to Jesus there in verse 21. I think it's really telling about Jesus' identity as, a, as the God-man. He's a human being. In verse 21, Judas's sin troubles Jesus' spirit. Sin is deeply relational. Judas is not just breaking a moral code here. He's not just breaking, breaking the law. He's breaking the Messiah's heart. This is the true heinousness of our sin. It's not just breaking the law, but it's actually fracturing a relationship. That's why sin is such a big deal in the Bible, because although sin is sort of like a breach of God's law, and that, that's bad enough for sure, it's actually far more than that. When we sin, we not only break God's law, we're trampling on a relationship with our Creator. It's relational. But do you know what's really amazing about this relational break with Judas? And we'll get to this more fully next week. But cheat down there to chapter 14 and look at verse 1. So Jesus, whose heart is troubled in this moment, tells his disciples in this moment, tells us in this moment, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus was troubled 
that we might not be. So when your heart is seizing up in panic about whatever, Jesus was troubled that you might not be. When your heart is aching for the affection or attention from a boss or another person or a people group or the desire to be married or what, whatever trouble it is that you're experiencing, just know that Jesus was troubled so that ultimately you might not be troubled. The troubled feeling that you're experiencing, while it's totally legitimate, and I would never want to uh, minimize the pain that you're feeling, the trouble that you're experiencing can be coped with because your ultimate trouble of sin has been dealt with at the cross. The trouble your eternal soul is in because of your sin has been neutralized by the troubled soul of Jesus. So let not your heart be troubled this morning. For a minute here, I want us to explore the progression of our sin too. Look up there in verse 2 of chapter 13. We covered this last week. But verse 2 says this, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and then look how it progresses down to verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel of bread, Satan entered into him. So I, I think what we can gather here is that there is a certain progression that sin makes in our hearts. As we allow it to hold sway in our hearts, it begins to take up more and more ground in our hearts. It begins to slowly own the majority of real estate in our hearts. And we might not even know it is the scary part. So take a look at Judas's opportunities between when Satan influenced him in verse 2 and then when he entered him in verse 27. Judas had so many opportunities. Here's three. Jesus gets down on his knees and washes Judas's feet. Jesus taught that he's God, that receiving him is receiving the Father. And third, Jesus handed Judas a symbol of deep friendship when he handed him that piece of bread. It's hard to tell it here in the text, but Jesus handing this piece of bread to Judas after he had dipped it is actually an intimate act of friendship in this culture. Taking bread and dipping it and handing it to someone at the table was a, ginger, uh, was a gesture of uh, special friendship. So Jesus' actions toward Judas are tailored, designed to soften Judas. Jesus washes him. He feeds him. He loves him. He offers him forgiveness and hope. Here's a chance for restoration, Judas. Please, just take it, man. Take it. Be restored. Take it while there's time. But instead of breaking Judas, it hardens him. What a sad story. Sin wanted the market share of the landscape of Judas's heart, and it took it. It'll take your shares, too, if you let it. So can I encourage you this morning? If the Lord is speaking to you about repentance, about following him, about rejecting a particular sin in your life, about you straying away from him, if he's correcting that in your heart this morning, can you, can you just give it up to him? Just say, yes, Jesus, you're the Lord I'm not. Sin wants you. It wants you bad. But the problem is this. It can never deliver to you what it promises it will. It will never give to you. Whatever that thing in your mind is right now that you might be struggling with surrendering, it will never give to you what it promises it will. You'll be left grieving and alone and in the dark. So after Jesus hands Judas that bread, that special symbol of friendship, Judas gets up and he leaves. And do you see that little anecdote there at the end of verse 30? Take a look. 
It says, and it was night. And it was night. John's not merely telling us the hour of the day here. No, he's telling us something about the nature of Judas's actions here. Sin takes you to really dark places, darker than you can even imagine right now. So when Judas pushes back from the table and stands up to leave, he was leaving the presence of the light of the world. And what he got was utter darkness, nighttime for his soul. He was committing soul suicide. And do you think it will be different for you? Have you wandered from the light? Maybe you've never come to the light. You may be walking into a darkness that you can't recover from. And I would just beg you to stop. This might sound harsh, but there is more joy to be had in Jesus' light than there is secret pleasure to be had in the dark. You gotta believe that this morning. There's more joy to be had in the presence of Jesus in the light than secret pleasure to be had in the dark. Come to where there is light in life. Come to Jesus. But with his humble serving actions, Jesus, Jesus is telling Judas, I see you. I, I can see you. I see you all the way to the bottom. And I still love you. I want you. Here's a symbol of my friendship. Let me wash you. Let me feed you. Judas, before your heart freezes, let me melt it with my love. But Judas rejects. The damage is done. So one last time this morning, can I encourage you to repent before it's too late, before your own heart freezes over? Jesus sees you all the way to the bottom, and he still wants you. This morning through this text, he's reaching out and saying, come, there is life and light with me. There is hope. There is joy. Would you come? Not merely in proximity, but relationally to Jesus. Proximity to Jesus is no substitute for our relationship with him, for life in him. So how do you know if you're faking it? How do you know if you're just wearing a mask? How do we know if we're just acting like Judas and we don't even know it? If we can deceive others and sometimes ourselves about our true allegiances, is there any way we can know for sure if our hearts have actually been captured by Jesus? If not all who appear to be in are actually in, we should carefully consider this question. And to answer this question, Jesus gives us a little bit of a litmus test here in this text, but we're going to get there in a moment. The next thing Jesus says there is in verse 31. He said, now is the Son of Man glorified. So this, this is the moment. Jesus says this at the very moment when Judas's final betrayal has been set in motion. This is the moment Jesus says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, now that my death is just a mere hours away, now I will shine with the greatest glory and God will shine gloriously in me. So as John, you can just picture him in there at that table, as John watches the door close behind Judas, and his mind is still sort of churning with the frightening news that Judas is a betrayer, and he is likely in that very moment doing Jesus dirty, in the fog of this confusion, he hears Jesus' voice cut through and say, now is the Son of Man glorified. What a wacky moment. You got Judas, you got betrayal, you got confusion, and now glory in this moment? This must have 
just been such a transcendent moment for John. Because what he hears next is even a little bit more puzzling. Verse 33, he, he hears Jesus calling them, this group of men, little children. A group of 11 dudes, and he calls them little children. This is the only place in the Gospel of John that this phrase, little children, is actually one word in the Greek, technia. It's the only place that it appears. This is actually the only place it is used in the entire New Testament, except for one other book. And this is really interesting. Because I don't know about you, but I can imagine that a grown man might find this description from another grown man a little bit demeaning. Little child. But that's quite the opposite for John, actually. You see... This Gospel of John is not the only book that the Apostle John wrote. He wrote a few others. He wrote the letter of 1 John, too. And in that short little letter, this same word is used seven times. So you've got it in the Gospel of John, Jesus calling his disciples that, and then you've got it in the letter to John, John calling his church that, his flock that. I don't think this is a coincidence. That's like his favorite name for his church, So John was clearly profoundly shaped by this moment of intimacy from Jesus. It's my family. You guys are my family. I point this out to remind us simply that the scriptures are a sweeping whole. Sometimes we think of them as a bunch of unrelated stories, but they're not. They actually all weave together into a single beautiful tapestry with the image of Jesus emblazoned on it from beginning to end. The Lord has given us something beautiful in this book, and it all ties together and fits together, even if it may not be immediately visible on the surface. Well, the newness of this new command that Jesus gives in verse 34, this new command I give to you, he says. It can't be new because nothing like it had ever been said before. God's word through his servant Moses back in Deuteronomy had long held out a high calling for God, for us to love God and for us to love neighbor. So he's not telling us anything new. It can't be because the concept was new. It's new because the standard was new, the standard of love. No one had ever seen love like this before. No one. A deity lowering himself to his creation to give his life for it, to get his towel dirty for it, This is the mind-blowing love that Jesus calls us to. Love others just as I have loved you. And so what Jesus says next leads us to our second and our final point for this morning. And it's the litmus test we referred to a minute ago. How can we know? How can we know if we're like Judas or not? So second this morning, believing about Jesus is no substitute for following Jesus. I mean, Judas believed about Jesus. Judas saw Jesus. He hung out with him for years but he didn't ultimately follow Jesus. There are two places in our text this morning, one where Jesus begs us to follow him into and one where he forbids us to follow him to. There's one where he says, come on, follow me, and another one where he says, "Uh uh-uh, don't come here, stay away. So first this morning, where we can follow Jesus, where we can follow Jesus, believing right things about Jesus always leads to us doing loving things like Jesus. Believing rightly about Jesus leads to us loving like Jesus. Belief in his identity leads to love for Jesus' people. Always, 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 belief leads to action. It's the story of the New Testament. Do you see it there in verse 34? Jesus says, love each other in the same way just as I loved you. 
So the call to see, the, the call here is for us, for the disciples, to see, to believe, and to study what Jesus has done. And I think in context here, he's just referring back to the beginning of the chapter when Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. He, he had just shown, shown this gritty, dirty, self-sacrificing kind of love. So the only way the disciples would be able to love just as Jesus did is by spending time with him, first, and by being served by him, second. They spent time with him, and they were served by him. They received from him so that they could give to others. So we had uh, a couple of birthdays this past weekend uh, in our family. And on Friday night, I took three of my girls out to get some world-class birthday presents for their sister Nora at Five Below. They, they took my, have you guys been in Five Below before? World-class peeps, you need to give Five Below a shot. They took my money, they took my money, and they bought presents for their sister. They had to receive from me in order to give to her. Had they not received from me, there was no chance that they could give to her, even from a place like Five Below. They just didn't have the means. It's not much different with you and with Jesus. You've got to go to him, receive from him, and give out of his wealth, out of his strength, out of his grace, out of his help to you. You don't have the means to love like Jesus until you first receive love from Jesus. You do not have the means to love like Jesus unless you first receive love from Jesus. You and I will only be able to love just as he loved by spending time with Jesus and by being served by Jesus. If you don't first view yourself as a recipient of his service, if you don't see yourself as a recipient, you will never be able to live your life in his service. Be served that you might serve. But if we're honest, most of us don't want to hassle with taking the time to receive more of Jesus' love. It's work to receive, isn't it? We'd rather just get on with gutting it out, with gutting out our own service and obedience the best we can. Can you hear this this morning? I'm talking to my heart. That's a recipe for disaster. You'll run out of steam faster than you can imagine, and then you'll just end up like Judas, replacing a relationship with Jesus with proximity to Jesus. I was there. I did it. It's your duty. But when Jesus fills our tanks full of love like he did with the disciples at the beginning of the chapter, he says, go, go spend it on my people. Your belief in his love must flower into actions of love. A budding faith in Jesus will result in showing the love of Jesus to other followers of Jesus. This cycle is never ending though. You always have to come back. You always have to come back and sit at Jesus' feet again and again and again, to refuel before going back out to wash others' feet. And when we begin to do this, it has real missional implications. Listen to these sobering words from a man named Francis Schaeffer. He says this, Jesus says, By this shall men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are truly Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. That's pretty frightening. Jesus turns to the world and says, I've got something to say to you. 
On the basis of my authority, I give you the right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love he shows to all Christians. In other words, if people come to us and judge that we are not Christians because we have not shown love toward other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative which Jesus gave to them. And we must not get angry. If people say, you do not love other Christians, we must go home. We must get on our knees and ask God whether or not they are right. And if they are, they have a right to have said what they said. So does the corner of your little world know that you follow Jesus because of your love for his people? Loving this little crew in here is one of the most missional things you can do. Eating together, laughing together, serving together, weeping together, reading the scriptures together, imploring one another to follow Jesus together. This is the real stuff of love. And Jesus says it's missionary work. You are missionaries when you do this. Loving each other is the way the world will know if we follow the one true God. We can't miss this. This is a high bar, church, really high. But we can serve in outlandish ways because we have been served in the most outlandish way by Jesus. Hear this clearly today, though. Our expression of radical love to one another is impossible to maintain by a sheer act of your will. It is impossible to maintain by a sheer act of your will. We can only serve out of the service that Jesus has shown to us. If you're trying to serve the saints at this church in any real, eternal, meaningful ways without being served yourself by Jesus, you're going to dry up so quick. You're not going to have what is necessary to offer. Because Jesus has met all of our needs, he has served us. Because he has done this for us, we are free to serve one another. We don't have to fight to get ours when Jesus has given us all of his. We need our hearts rewired by the overwhelming love of the gospel. As our hearts are rewired by the gospel, we'll be increasingly free to show the love of the gospel. We need a fundamental rewiring. And this is truly the greatest gift we can give to the world, a compelling love for one another. So in our little faith community here, who are you loving as Jesus has loved you? Is your cup overflowing with Jesus' love, or are you just eking by, showing up, getting it done? This morning, every day, would you fill up on Jesus so that you have the margin and the fuel to love others? That's where we can follow Jesus. Here's where we can't follow Jesus from the text. So as we come to the end of chapter 13 here, Jesus strikes a different chord altogether. He does not say, you should follow me and do as I have done. But instead he says, you can't follow me now. Don't even try. Verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow now. His refusal to allow us to follow him here is the best news the world has ever heard. His news, his refusal to allow us to follow here is the best news the world has ever heard. There was a place that they couldn't follow Jesus at night, and this was very, very good news. Jesus was about to do what only he could do. He was going to the darkest place ever, a place so dark we could never find our way out. 
He's going where no man has ever or ever will go. He's going to pay a debt that we could not ever imagine having the means to pay. He's going to pave the way back to the Father through his death. Why can't we follow Jesus here? It's because, like one theologian has said, we can't get to the Father beside Jesus, assisting him. We can't get to God behind Jesus, imitating him, because we can never do it well enough. We can only get to the Father through Jesus by depending on him. Where I am going this night, you cannot follow. And where is it that I'm going? I'm going to die for you, to become the one way back to God for you. You can't follow now. Only I can do this. It's my work alone. We don't have to follow Jesus into the night. Jesus saying, you can't follow me now, is very good news for us. Because if he did say, follow me, it would mean certain death for us. We couldn't carry the weight of our sin. Only Jesus can enter into the darkness and destroy it. Only Jesus can abolish death by succumbing to it. But remember this. It's Jesus' hour. It's his hour. It's a short time. It's the hour of his death. It will only last for a time. And then he will emerge from death. Then he's coming out. Then he's going to break the chains of death. He'll expose the darkness with his unquenchable light. And his redeeming work will be finished. All the sins of his people vanquished. It's only the hour of his death. So I store my photos in my Amazon Prime account. And every day or most days, they'll link to pictures that were taken on that very same date the previous year or two or three. One popped up in my phone yesterday that encapsulates, I think, what our response to this truth should be. So two years ago yesterday, Eden was opening an early birthday present from her grandparents. She got this tablet, an Amazon Fire. And this was so far outside of what she thought that she would ever get. Me too. It wasn't from me. It was from her grandparents. I mean, it's a well-known fact in our house that she will not be getting her first phone until her 31st birthday, and it will be a flip phone. Um, But she never thought in a million years that she'd be the proud owner of a tablet. And you can almost read it on her face. You can see this picture behind me. It's like this cocktail of utter shock, confusion, wait, what? And joy. Like, who? Me? I get a tablet? How can this be? No way. And then you got Ellie next to her. If you look on the far end of the picture, you've got Ellie next to her showing the same emotion in a totally Ellie way, like, what? No way. Friends, many of us have been in relationship in proximity to Jesus for many years. Decades even, perhaps. Have you lost the wonder of who? Me? Jesus washes my feet? Jesus was troubled so that I wouldn't have to be troubled? Jesus loved me all the way into the darkness of death? Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay? Man, you've got to drink deeply of who me? Who me? You've got to have this cocktail in your heart of joy, shock, like what? Joy, shock, confusion. You've got to live in that reality and feel it. 
what the favor that the Father has shown to you through Jesus. May we never lose the wonder that Jesus has this sort of love for us. And the more that we are rewired by this love, the more we'll be, the more we'll be able to show this love to one another. And the more we show this love to one another, the more the world will look on and be intrigued about our master, about our servant, about our savior. Don't just live in proximity to Jesus. Live in relationship with him. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's easy to show up to check church off the list for the week. I pray that you would destroy that inclination in our hearts, that you would breathe life and joy and hope into our hearts, that we would be hungry and thirsty for you to serve us so that we could serve out of your service to us. We need your help, Lord. Move in us in these ways so that the world around us can see that you are their only hope in this life and the next. I pray that over the course of the next week and month and year and decade, that this church would increasingly become known for the love for each other so that the watching world can say, yes, that's what I want. That's what I need. I need Jesus. I need a love like that. Help us never lose the wonder that you have rescued us and made us your kids. In Jesus' name, amen.